Hi, and welcome to Resurrection Church, where Dr. Joseph G. Matera is the senior pastor and presiding bishop. We are committed to serving our community and the community abroad. We pray that the word you are about to hear will be a blessing to your life and that you allow the Holy Spirit to open your heart and receive what the Lord is speaking to you. Amen. All right, and I want to invite Bishop Joe up to deliver the word for us today. Good to see everybody, live stream, everybody in person, excited that we can gather together, and we're hoping that this, uh, this uh, strain of COVID will burn itself out soon and just twiddle down as it is now to a common cold, probably never go away, but will never be like it was two years ago, so we're hoping for that. Um, also, before I get into the message, I just wanted to honor my wife. She's going to, going to turn 65 this Wednesday. So, Joyce, stand up. I just want to stand up. And so, in May, we'll be celebrating 42 years. And uh, this week, uh, 65 years that she's been here. And the anniversary of the church is January 29th. We started in 1984. So next week is Vision Sunday, and you're going to be so excited when you hear the vision of our church, of what we're planning the next three years. And uh, we even have other campuses beginning to assimilate and join us. It's exciting the way God is multiplying. And when you have vision, God multiplies and he uh, just backs it up with power. So that's what we're seeing happen. And so thank God COVID has not stopped the church. And the gates of hell will never prevail, no matter what culture, no matter what the devil does. And that's what we're going to talk about today. In Jesus' name, give us your wisdom and understanding. We're going to speak about how to endure, how to be faithful in the gospel, how to be faithful in the gospel. So, Lord, we thank you. We're breathing on this in Jesus' name. Second Corinthians is the most personal of all the letters of Paul. And uh, people like scholar N.T. Wright, who wrote a, uh, a biography about Paul a few years ago, plums into the depths of this epistle more than any other because of how personal it is. And uh, Paul was very transparent and he was very human, and he didn't act like some of these super spiritual, mystical, self-righteous, crazy Christians. He was just very down-to-earth, as you will see, and admitted his uh, issues. And so, uh, praise God. So what we're going to do is jump into uh, chapter 4, but we're going to read some parts of chapter 3 as a backdrop so we're going to talk about faithfulness to the gospel, and for some reason this thing keeps blowing my page, so I've got to figure out what to do. Maybe this, I don't know if that's going to work. The devil doesn't want me to preach today, that's all. I'm kidding, I'm kidding, which it's not untrue, but the methodology is a joke. All right, so... Let's get to 2 Corinthians. First, we're going to read a bit of chapter 3 for context. And Paul, as we reviewed last week, was speaking about the contrast between the Old and New Testament. He called the Old Testament in verse 7 of chapter 3 the ministry of death engraved and written on stones. Of course, referring to the Mount Sinai encounter that Moses had with God when God, with his own finger, wrote the Ten Commandments. We see in Romans 7, the reason why it was called administration of death was not because the law is evil or bad, but because it reminds us of our own sinfulness. We didn't know what sin was until the law came, it says in Romans 5. And so the law made us even more sinful because it ministered to the rebelliousness in our own flesh so, like, if you tell a child, don't walk into this room, even though they didn't think of walking into the room, they're going to walk in the room. 
you tell somebody don't think about uh, an elephant, they're going to be thinking about an elephant for the next half hour. So the law tells us what not to do, and it, it incites the fleshly rebellious desires. So that's why Paul, in this context, is calling it the ministration of death. Again, because the law is good, Romans seven eighteen, uh, but it's the flesh that brings about this ministry of death. It condemns us all, and that's why we could all say we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Romans three twenty three. So he calls it the ministration of death, but he says, but there is another glorious ministration coming. That's the ministry of the Spirit. He compares it to the ministration of the law, and he says the ministration of the Spirit is glorious, even more glorious. So now, the ministration of the law was glorious to the point in which, if you read Exodus chapter 33, after Moses was spending time with God and he came down from the mountain, he had to hide his face. He had to put a veil over his face because the glory of God was shining so much. So he's saying, if the ministration of death is glorious, how much more glorious will be the ministration of the Spirit? Of course, we all know, on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit fell upon the 120 believers that were gathered in prayer, and that was the official birth of the church. So it was birth in glory in the Spirit, and it started what we would call the age of the Spirit, bringing the reign of Christ on the earth. And then he says in verse 12, again, chapter 3, Therefore, since we have such hope, what hope? This incredible, glorious ministry of the Spirit brought about by the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Since we have such hope, we use great boldness of speech. And that will carry over to the next chapter. Remember that term, boldness of speech. Unlike Moses, who put a veil over his face, so that the children of Israel could not steadily, at, uh, at the end, look at what was passing away. But their minds were blinded. For until this day, the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament, because the veil is taken away only in Christ. And so when the law of Moses is read to an unconverted Jewish person, according to Paul in those days, there was a veil the same veil that stopped them to, from looking at Moses' face is now stopping them from understanding the true meaning of the Bible, uh, uh, of the Old Testament especially. And he said, even to this day, even in those days, a veil lays on their heart. So it wasn't just on Moses' face. That was symbolic of a future time which came when Christ uh, began his ministry, when that veil on Moses' face represented a veil on the heart of people to stop them from understanding the truth of the gospel. What is the cure for that? Verse 16 of uh, 2 Corinthians 3. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, when one changes their mind, when one gives God space, when God uh, moves on them and they repent and they say, okay, Lord, whether I believe this or not, now I'm open to it. Whenever... One turns to the Lord, that's a choice on our part, not God's part. He put it on us, not on God. The veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit. This is another verse that uh, kind of depicts what we would call the triune God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. So here the Lord is called the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not a force like electricity, similar to the Jehovah Witnesses' heretical teaching. The Holy Spirit's not a person but a force because if the Holy Spirit was not a person, then the Lord is not a person because he says here the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom or liberty. But we all, with unveiled face, in other words, the veil is not on our face the way it was on um, Moses' face, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as the Lord by the Spirit of the Lord. And so we don't have a veil. We've turned to the Lord. And because of that, the Spirit of the Lord transforms us from glory to glory into the image and likeness of Christ. Now, picking up on that in chapter 4, 
And the reason why you have to read chapter 3 is because chapter 4 starts off, therefore. Well, you wouldn't know what therefore means if you didn't read the prior context. So therefore, since we have this ministry, what ministry? The ministry of the Spirit that we just talked about. We have received mercy. We do not lose heart. But we have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by the manifestation of the truth, we commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. But if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine upon them. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For it is God who commanded light to shine in the darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So going back, chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, because we have this incredible ministry that's even more glorious than the Old Testament, the ministry of the Spirit that brings liberty and freedom, therefore... Because we have, or in Paul's case, we've been entrusted with this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. And so the first thing Paul is mentioning is that it is out of an act of God's mercy that he has this ministry. How many know it is the greatest privilege and honor for us to represent God it is God's mercy. And in Paul, as great as an apostle he was, he never thought he was entitled to this ministry. Too many people think they deserve God's blessings. Too many people think that they're entitled because they got a master's degree, let's say theology, and now they're entitled to be a pastor. No one's entitled to anything. It's all based on his mercy. To think that we can represent the living God and that we earned it or deserved it is an affront and an insult to God himself. And so Paul was grounded in his own understanding of his weaknesses, his foibles, his sinful nature. And he realized every time he opened his mouth to speak a word about the gospel, it was out of God's mercy it was never because he earned it or because he was a great apostle. It reminds me of when Peter was called by Jesus as Jesus was utilizing his fishing boat. And Jesus told him, cast a net on this side. Well, Peter said, Master, we've been fishing all night and we didn't catch anything. Nevertheless, at your word, we're going to do it. And he put the net in. This is in Luke chapter 7. And they catch so much fish, they needed other boats to help them. And then Peter knelt down before Jesus, and he said, Master, depart from me. I'm a sinful man. He realized that he was in the proximity of greatness, of, of only God could have pulled off what was just done. And so Peter had this utter sense of sinfulness, even though Jesus said, don't worry, one, I'm making you a fisher of men. Jesus didn't say you're not sinful, don't speak like that. He basically acknowledged it, but said, I'm, in spite of that, I'm going to make you a fisher of men. In spite of our sins, in spite of our failures, in spite of our foibles, in spite of our past, in spite of our baggage, in spite of our uh, past experiences that may have been very negative, negative, in God's mercy, he still called us to represent him. Isn't that great? Isn't that powerful? And so he said, we have received this mercy, and in the same context, no grammatical separation, as we've received this mercy, I'm sorry, as we receive this ministry, as we have received mercy. Ministry is mercy. Whenever we open our mouth for God, it's God's mercy. What a privilege. I'll never, ever take that for granted even though I've been doing this for over 40 years. I do this in fear and trembling and make sure I have my heart right and focused 
starting on Saturday, focusing and avoiding certain conversations and shows and different things, having my heart right, making sure I get up early to pray and seek God. I stand before God in fear and trembling every time I get up here. Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. We do not lose heart. We don't lose heart, and we'll find out how Paul endured later on in this passage. But we have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, we commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Everybody could, could tell if someone's genuine. You don't even have to be a Christian to tell if there's authenticity. And the more someone is speaking the truth and living the truth as best as they can, the more authority, the more power, the more genuineness. And even those who don't know the Lord can say, man, this, I don't know if I believe what he believes, but I know he believes what he believes, right? Uh, and so that's what gives the gospel so much power is when we're, we're, we're able to commend what we say to someone's conscience. See, the gospel doesn't have anything hidden. The gospel doesn't have any deceit. The gospel doesn't have any hypocrisy. The gospel doesn't have any darkness. The gospel doesn't have any heresy. The gospel doesn't have any untruths. The gospel doesn't contradict any kind of uh, spiritual or dynamic truths in the physical world. The gospel is true, so why shouldn't the presentation of the gospel be without gimmicks and be true? We don't need to help God. We don't need tricks. We don't need magic. We don't need gimmicks. We don't need hyperbole. We don't need uh, certain emotional ways of exhibiting something. The gospel is the gospel. And just preach the gospel. And then let God do the work. That's what Paul's saying. We commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Because we're preaching the gospel. Unlike those who handle the word of God deceitfully. We see in Philippians chapter 1, for example... Paul says that uh, there are some that preach the word not out of good and sincere hearts and motives, but they preach the word in a manner that was to try to get him in trouble. In um, Philippians chapter 1, a letter to the church of, Car of uh, Philippi, Philippi in Greece, he said, some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. So not everybody is preaching, even today, not, even, not everybody is preaching with good motives. Not every minister is preaching with good motives. Not every pastor is preaching with good motives. And not every person is even a Christian with the right motive, right? So it's not picking on pastor day. It's everybody. Uh, and so Paul's in stupid. He says, some preach from selfish ambition. And there's a lot we can say about that. Hiding behind God and using the Bible to get what they want for themselves uh, through the ignorance of people. And so they preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my chains. In other words, as they do crazy things, he would get in more trouble for representing God while he was in jail. But the latter out of love. So there's some who really do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And in this I rejoice, yea, I will rejoice. So Paul is saying, even though there are people who aren't preaching with the right motives, he's still excited about it because at least the gospel's getting out there. So here he's not referring to false teaching. He's referring to correct teaching with wrong motives. You see the difference? He wouldn't rejoice over heretical teaching, false teaching. He would, there are some who preach false teaching with good motives. They just don't know any better. But there are some who preach the truth with bad motives. And Paul is saying, even if they're preaching with the wrong motive, I'm still rejoicing because it's still being preached. 
God could override someone's wrong motive and still save somebody. Isn't that something? You might even have a phony preacher and people could still get saved and get healed, not because of the preacher, but in spite of them, because God looks at the faith. And so God could even use a phony to elicit faith in someone and someone could get healed or saved. It's amazing. Isn't that something? On my worst day, God could still use me. God could use a donkey to rebuke Elisha, uh, to rebuke uh, Balaam. So he could use any donkey, and there is a slang word for that. But some think it's a cuss, some don't, so I don't want to go there. All right. I'm sorry, Ted. I might have offended you. I'm sorry. Ted is old school. Old school. Uh, all right, so um, we have renounced the hidden things of shame, and that also is speaking about the pagan religions that were very common in those days. Uh, they were hidden, even the false teaching called Gnosticism, which was gathering steam in those days. They were done in darkness. They were hidden mysteries. Their rituals were not known to everybody. You had to be initiated. It was secret. Uh, and then a lot of the pagan religions also were involving magic and trickery and taking advantage of naive people. And they were able to uh, mass hypnotize people uh, with their trickery. And so what Paul is saying is, no, the gospel doesn't need that kind of trickery. The gospel doesn't need any... Um, hidden things to make it more mysterious and attractive. The gospel is the gospel. It's right out there, right there for everyone to see and to grasp. But then he says, but even if our gospel is veiled, another translation would say, if our gospel is hidden, it is hidden or veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God, small g, of this age has blinded. Wow. Wow. And so again, we had to know chapter 3 to understand the reference in verse 3 of chapter 4, even if our gospel is veiled, it goes back to chapter 3, verse 12, where it says Moses put a veil on his face and that there's a veil on the hearts of the Jews until they turn to the Lord. So in that context now, he's saying, but if our gospel is veiled, that illustration going back to Moses, it is veiled to those who are perishing. So now he took it to another level. It is not just the Jews who have a veil on their heart. All of humanity have a veil on their heart. And that stops them from fully understanding the gospel, and here Paul is throwing it at the feet of the devil who makes it even harder. So it's not only the human stubbornness and proclivity of rebellion against God to be autonomous and to do whatever they want. Like sheep, we went our own way, as Isaiah 53, 4 says. Um, but it's also the devil who now looks at the rebellion of humanity and he tries to program them systemically. And we see this with media. We see this with Facebook. We see this all over the place. There's a, the programs. You can't even watch a sitcom. You can't even watch Law and Order. You can't even watch uh, anything, a comedy, without a certain agenda coming forth, right? So this is all part. It's not just individual demons messing with someone's brain. It's, it's also a, a systemic plan of Satan to have a certain narrative that totally goes against the truth of the gospel. Uh, and so he says that if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. So those who do not know the Lord, there's a certain limitation on what they could understand, even rationally, because it says whose minds the God of this age has blinded. That word mind in the Greek is intellect. And so I, I've often been befuddled by this. I can't understand how somebody with their life and eternity on the line doesn't understand or believe the gospel. It just doesn't make sense to me. 
If all you do is just one thing, investigate the historical probability of the resurrection, which everything falls on, if that's all you did, how could you not get saved? I've read books against the resurrection. I've read liberal theologians. Nobody can historically disprove the resurrection, and they all say it's a mystery. Somehow the body disappeared. They never found the body. Um, they never found bones. They, they, the, the tomb is empty. I mean, even those who don't know the Lord admit that the body's never been found. So what happened to the body? That's even a greater miracle with all the Roman soldiers and all the conspiracies against Jesus and all the Jewish leaders looking for his body, and his body wasn't found. I mean, that was before the days of helicopters, right? Uh, they didn't have the advances that we have today where you could have done something with the body, maybe. Uh, and so, and, you know, probably a 180-pound body. What are you going to do with that with Roman soldiers guarding the tomb, Right. So nobody has an answer for that. So I always wonder, how could someone not get saved just with that alone? And sure enough, many people have come to Christ who tried to disprove the resurrection. You know, the devil is, is not as smart as God. So God allows the devil to bait people and to think, okay, I'm going to disprove the resurrection. Wow, that's the biggest trick. Maybe one of the biggest up God's sleeve because... So many people who try to disprove the resurrection wind up getting saved. Even atheists and scientists and smart people, guys like Josh McDowell and uh, Lee Strobel, who was an investigative reporter, I think he worked for Newsweek, tried to disprove the resurrection. He winds up getting saved. I think the same thing might have happened with C.S. Lewis or, uh, or uh, Tolkien. But, um, yeah, I mean, why? If you look at the logical plan of God with using his son to become a human, to take our place. Everyone admits they're sinners. You just go through the list of the Ten Commandments. You could easily admit that you're a sinner. If you don't think you're a sinner, one day we'll just go through the Ten Commandments. You ever lied once, you're a liar. If you ever uh, had lustful thoughts with somebody else, you're an adulterer. Why? Because an apple cannot come forth from something that at its root is not an apple tree. So adultery can't come out of your heart if you're not an adulterer. If you've ever hated anybody, Jesus said you're a murderer. You violated the fifth commandment. Congratulations. Or the sixth commandment. When you go through the Ten Commandments, you know you're a sinner. Right? We know we've all fallen short of God's glory, and that sets us up to understand, wait a minute, God so loved the world that he had to become a human because an animal couldn't be replaced for us, sacrificed for us. He became a human, lived a perfect life, and then allowed his son to be the ultimate sacrifice that if anyone believes in him, he would not perish. Jesus said this was the gospel, and he said, I'm going to rise after three days. He rose. Try to disprove that one. He said he was going to rise and he rose. And then, what about the testimony of the billions of Christians the last 2,000 years? I know that I personally would not have been converted by man. No nun, no priest, and no preacher could have converted me. I was way too proud and stubborn. I had a lot of good things going for me. I wasn't down and out. I was up and in. But inside I was empty, and I asked Jesus to come in my life. To me, I'm still blown away with the presence of God, the peace, the sense of forgiveness, the sense of knowing God's voice. 42 years, 44 years later, I'm still blown away and excited because I remember how my life was before that. So what about the testimonies Everybody's had a family member who's been born again. What about the testimony of their conversion? So the resurrection isn't alone. The testimony of billions of Christians the last 2,000 years. How is it that everyone doesn't come to Christ? How is it that Jews read the Old Testament and don't come to Christ? Well, Paul is showing us that there is a veil 
And it's not easy to get rid of that veil. We have to turn. That word turn is a strong word in the Greek. We have to turn to the law. We have to go against culture. We have to go against societal mores uh, that may be in our own community. We have to go against, you know, maybe taking a chance of losing our friends and family. And I was a popular young guy, a rock guitar player. I was on my way to making it big. And one of my friends, the lead singer of my band, went at, wanted to kill me. He had a gun. He was going after me when, when my life changed. And he thought I would quit the band. My, my friends thought I was crazy. So there's all this that you take into consideration. That's why you got to turn for that veil. It's not easy. It might cost you everything. Paul said, I count everything but cow manure, dung, that I may win Christ. He says, if you want to follow me, Jesus said, you have to take up your cross and follow me. It's not easy. You got to pay the price. There is a price to pay, but it's worth it because the price Jesus paid was a lot more than any of us will ever pay. And out of gratitude, we should willingly give everything a whole heart to him. And so Paul is saying the God, the small God, meaning there is demonic influence in this world and boy once you're saved you could really see it it's like that movie the matrix when you get saved you took one of those pills i don't want to say blue pill or red pill because one of them could sound like viagra i don't know i could never remember which pill it is is it the blue pill the red pill i don't know but you take one of those pills and your eyes are open and my god you see that you were in an alternative universe that's what happened when i got born again that's what jesus meant when he said when you're born again, you will see the kingdom. It's like when you take that, what is it, the red pill? When you take that pill, you, you see, my God, I've been hoodwinked all these years. I was in another universe, another prism, another matrix, another vortex, another meta. <laughs> and now it took turning to the Lord. To lift that veil. See, it isn't the gospel's fault. The gospel itself isn't hidden. It's out there for everyone to see. If you don't see the blazing sun in the noon of day, it is not the fault of the sun. It's because you have blindfolders on or you're not looking at it. It is not the fault of a bubbling spring or flowing river that if you're thirsty, that you don't put your head in there and drink from that water. It's there. It is never the fault of God or the gospel if someone doesn't get saved. The gospel is plain and evident for all to see. And to break that satanic intellectual bondage, you have to turn. You have to really want to. You have to be desperate. And that's why some of the best things that can happen to someone is they reach the bottom and they come into a crisis where they don't care if they lose everything. They've already lost everything. And so Paul says, if our gospel is hidden or veiled, it is hidden to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this world is blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine in them. So the main thing Satan tries to block is to understand who Christ is. It says Christ is the glory and image of God. He is the light of the gospel. And so once someone gets a glimpse of who Jesus is, it's finished. Game over. Drop the mic. They come to Christ. Once they have an awakening of who Jesus is, that's what Paul is saying. And that's the thing Satan tries to fight the most. Because Jesus is the image of God. He wasn't just a good man or a prophet or a martyr who died. He was God in the flesh who died for us. Whew. The greatest mystery of all. Councils, eons of debates, philosophies, and books have been written about trying to understand how God could be fully God and fully human 
the same time, the Council of Nicaea, the Council of Constantinople, and the Council of Chalcedon all dealt with the two wills, diatheletism, it's called, the two wills of Christ, the human will and the divine will. And uh, don't want to get there too much, but if he was just divine, he would have sucked in the humanity and he would have just been a puppet. He was fully human, not a puppet, with hunger and thirst, but fully divine. Incredible. And so, Jesus called the image of God, and then Paul says in verse 5, in light of this, we do not preach ourselves. Well, how could you preach yourself? Any preacher who talks about himself too much, any preacher who uses the I word too much, I mean, there's a little something. Anybody who draws disciples after themselves, there's something wrong there. Paul said, we do not preach ourselves. But Christ Jesus, the Lord, Christus Victor, Christ alone, Christ is conqueror, Christ is king, Christ is Lord, Christos Kyros, Christ is Lord. That's why we live. It is not I live, but Christ who lives in me. We do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus, the Lord. And ourselves, you bond, your bondservants, for Jesus' sake. He didn't look like he was entitled. He called himself a slave, a bondservant, for Jesus' sake. So you have someone who's pointing to themselves, saying, I'm the man of God that God has sent into the world. And if you give to me, you'll get a hundred thousand fold. And God spoke to me, and God did this, and God did this in my life, and everything's about me. The false trinity, I, me, my. That right there is a telltale sign that there's something wrong with that boy. And so, Paul then gives some understanding of how the gospel actually shines through. This is one of the most fascinating passages in the whole Bible. I, I, look, I'm just going to read it. I don't know how many are going to catch this. I'm trying to grasp it myself. Verse 6, for it is God who commanded light to shine out of darkness. He's talking about Genesis 1-3, right? Who now he brings it over to personal conversion, who has shown in our hearts, that's when the veil is broken, to what? Not for the stars and illuminaries to shine physically, but to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Incredible. What he's saying there is the whole universe, the whole cosmos, was built as God's temple to depict God's glory that is in the future from Genesis to the New Testament was going to be fulfilled when God's light shone in a human's heart. That was the whole culmination of the theater of creation, the new creation the new heavens and the new earth, beginning when Jesus inaugurated gospel preaching and said the kingdom of God is at hand. Wow. I don't know how many of you catching this. And then he says that how an, another human being is going to have this revelation of the face of Christ is from the heart of another person. Someone say, from my heart God will shine. God doesn't bypass Christians. He doesn't bypass the church. If you want to see God, you have to go to the church. If you want to see God, you have to go to people who follow God. That's what he's saying here. Look, I'm going to read it again. God who commanded light to shine out of darkness has shown where? In our hearts. Someone said he's shown in our hearts. He's shown in our hearts. Why? To give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Out of our hearts, the face of Christ shines to people. The more Christ-like you are, the more the face or image of Christ comes through, and the easier it will be for people to have their hearts awoken 
to salvation. Wow. This is what it means to be woke. Have your spirit man woke by a Christian shining and yielding to God. That's why if you have phony Christians, they actually are hurting people from seeing the true God. Isn't that something? I, I Look, man, I could preach off of this for three hours, but because we have time limits, I'm going to go on. And so after he brings out this mind-blowing truth of God shining and revealing himself through people, through people, so the church is the invisible is the visible manifestation of the invisible Christ. Then he says, "But in light of this, in, 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 in other words, you would think that we're superhuman, right? That we're these cyborg, transhuman, incredible uh, Marvel comic hero. Uh, you know, uh, we no, 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 no. He's shining in our hearts." But he's shining through very weak vessels. Verse 7. But. Lest you get a wrong impression of Christians. We have this treasure in earthen vessels. Why? So that the excellence. Of the power may be of God. And not of us. So people can brag about God. And not about the so-called superhero. Super Christian. There are no such thing as super Christians. There are mature Christians, but no super Christians. And then he gives a little bit of a testimony. We are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed. Even Paul was confused at times, but not in despair. We are persecuted, but not forsaken. Even if everyone else is against you, God never forsakes you. We're struck down. In other words, we have failure. And it could also mean physical, being st- struck down physically as he was stoned and beaten many times. We're struck down but not destroyed. Why? Verse uh, 10. We're always carrying about in our body, the temple of the Holy Ghost, we're always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus. We're depicting the crucifixion when we surrender everything and allow ourselves even to be mistreated for the sake of the gospel we are carrying about in our body the dying of the lord jesus so that the life the resurrection power of christ may be manifested in our body are you grabbing this the resurrection power of christ is manifest in our physical body God gets glory in our weakness. God gets glory even though we're perplexed, even though we're distressed, even though we're uh, crushed, even though we're knocked down, even though we're persecuted. God is getting glory as long as all of that is because we're carrying in our body the death of the Lord, meaning we're not afraid of being persecuted for Jesus. No matter how hard it is, we're going to obey him. We're going to allow our flesh to be crucified We're going to do what he wants more than we want, no matter how tough it is. That's what he's talking about when he says we carry about in our body the death of the Lord Jesus. It's not about what you want. It's not about what you desire. It's not about what makes you happy. It's about being faithful. It's about being obedient. That's what he's talking about. It's not a prosperity gospel of happiness. Paul would never even recognize some of the stuff being preached today. And so the whole thing is the life of Christ being manifest in our body. Then verse 11, for we who live are always being delivered to death. It's not just a bad day, it's a bad life. (laughs) Now he's not talking about it being bad, he's always rejoicing. But what he's saying is it's a lifestyle. It's not something he puts on on Sunday in a building for two hours. We are always being delivered for death. It's never about our will. It's his will, his will, his will. We're always being delivered to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus may be manifest in our mortal flesh. 
So then death is worked, working in us, meaning Paul, but life in you. In other words, the more he sacrifices for God, the more of a blessing will be to the church. It's always for the sake of others. And then he gets into principles of how he survives all this. Verse 13, there are four principles he brings out as he ends this part of the dialogue. And since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believed and therefore I spoke, we also therefore believe and speak, knowing that he who raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise us up with Jesus and present us with you. For all things are for your sakes, that grace, having spread through the many, may cause thanksgiving to abound to the glory of God. Going back to verse 13. First principle. So how does he make it with all this persecution and being struck down and all of this stuff going on? How does he remain faithful and endure his call to be a steward of the gospel? Number one, he says he walks in a spirit of faith. And what is the spirit of faith? He says, I believed and therefore I spoke. He always spoke out of his mouth what he believed in his heart. That's how people get saved. If you believe uh, in your heart that God raised, uh, if you confess in your mouth and believe in your heart God raised Jesus from the dead, you'll be saved. So the word of God, the principle of faith is what got him through. He's probably referring to making declarations and praying and he's also talking about what Abraham did when he called those things that are not as though they were. What God promised, you speak it out. And as you speak it out, you're believing that God is going to make it happen supernaturally. So you take the word and speak it out. And so he believed the word of God and he spoke it out loud. That's one thing that he did. Verse 17. I'm sorry, uh, verse uh, 14. Knowing that he who raised up Jesus will also raise us up with Jesus and present us with you. Second thing that enabled him to continue is he had a hope in the final resurrection. The reason why he's able to speak out in faith is because his hope was anchored in the fact that Jesus is coming a second time and he's going to come to judge the living and the dead. And at one day, he's going to raise us all up together. And you know that we're going to be united with every saint who ever lived. In the Old Testament, New Testament, we're going to hang out with Abraham, Noah, Seth, uh, Ezekiel. Ezekiel, what do you mean by the will within the will? I mean, I have a lot of questions for some of these boys. Paul, Peter, all of these guys, we're going to be united. And Res Church doesn't end here. We're going to be in eternity knowing each other. That's what he's saying here. Look, he said, knowing that he who raised up Jesus will raise us up with Jesus and will present us with you. There's going to be some kind of celebratory gathering in glory in eternity in heaven where there's going to be a reunion, a great reunion in the air in heaven where God says, okay, it's time for Resurrection Church to come. I want you all to meet again. Everyone who's ever been a part of the church. I remember Lena Cariola. I remember Lorraine Grimstead. I remember um, uh, Gladys Pacheco. All these great saints in our church who died in the 1980s. I can't wait to see them again. I can't wait to be united with Lillian Aspen. I can't be wait to be united with uh, Lenny Weston. Uh, and with, I could go on and on and on. Some of the saints that have been a part of our church one day will be presented together. That's the second thing that kept Paul going. He had hope in the ultimate consummation of human history. That resurrection that's going to raise all of us together. Now, if you don't like me, I got bad news for you. You're stuck with me for eternity. The good news, if you like me, then we'll hang out a lot more in the future. Third principle, therefore, we do not lose heart. Verse 16, 
Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. Third principle, allow God to renew your inner man. It's never what happens to you that matters. It's what happens in you that matters. Every challenge is an opportunity for God. Spend that time with God. Give him space to renew you every day. And you will have the impetus and the impulse to keep going. The fourth point, for our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While, here it is, the fourth point, while we do not look at the things which we could see with our physical eye, but at the things which are not seen. He sees what can't be seen physically. Powerful. For the things which are seen, by implication physically, are temporary. But the things which are not seen are eternal. The fourth principle is he never judged reality. God's existence, his own faith, by what was happening in front of him. He always looked at the things he couldn't see. The same principle we find in Moses who didn't obey Pharaoh, it says in Hebrews 11, because he saw him who was invisible and esteemed the riches of Christ of greater value than suffering and having the, um, than having the pleasure of sin with Pharaoh for a season. When you cultivate that walk with God, you will be able to look at the unseen realm and it will be as clear and as real to you as the physical realm. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Hebrews 11.3, by faith we understand that God framed the universe with the word of God so that the things which are seen are not made, were not made by the things which are seen. This is the world we live in, the world of faith. We live, next chapter we're going to see Paul say, we live by faith and not by sight. And that was the four things that kept Paul going. He spoke out in faith and believed God. He had hope in the ultimate resurrection. He never looked at what was seen. And he always had that hope and that faith that God was real. No matter what was going on, no matter what he was suffering, no matter what challenges he had. Is there anybody here who wants to be a steward of the gospel? This is no prosperity gospel. You have to count the cost. It means you have to carry in your body the death of the Lord Jesus. There's going to be a lot of blessings. As a matter of fact, there are more blessings following Christ in this world than there are when you don't follow him. Just his presence and peace alone is worth more than all the riches of the world. But we have to carry it, meaning we can't be ashamed. We're not ashamed of our nice jeans and clothes. We wear it, show it off. can't be ashamed of the gospel. We have to carry about in our body the death of the Lord Jesus. We don't have to conform to the world, do what our friends want, and feel pressure with our friends and family to do something that causes us to stumble and sin. No, carry in our body the death of Christ. Take up our cross. What a small price to pay for this glorious gospel. Let's all stand up. Is there anybody here who would say, I want to fully surrender to God today? Let me see your hands. Anybody? I want to fully surrender. I want to give my life to him. Maybe you've never given your life to him before. 
or maybe you have but you want to recommit yourself if that's you at some point you can make your way up here I'm going to ask that anybody uh, all the leaders that are here we still struggling with people available at times because of COVID but any of the leaders that help us pray just come up now at any point if you want prayer you come up let's all put our hands up Father we thank you we thank you God and because we have received mercy from you we don't lose heart oh God what a great privilege what a great honor you've given us follow you to follow you there'll never be another opportunity never be another door open there'll never be another option there'll never be another platform as great as what we have been given now it doesn't get better than this we who have the spirit inside we who break bread together every week with communion we who have the church we who have the death and life of Christ in our body it doesn't ever get better than this they could have all the riches of the world all the technological tools and cars and perks but without you, their life is totally empty. Oh, God, we thank you. What an honor. What a privilege. What mercy you have extended to us by enabling us as Christians to represent you to the world. Oh, God. And Father, we pray that by this word that was brought forth, you would confirm your people. You would establish them. And Father, if there's anybody who still has the veil on their heart, that they would be woke today. That the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ would shine out of our hearts and wake them up, shake them up, put the light bulbs on, that they would see the kingdom of God that they would come out of the false matrix and universe into the meta universe of the kingdom. Open their eyes, open their eyes. Someone say, open their eyes. Open their eyes. I feel there's some here who need to give their life to Christ. I don't know if you're in front of me, the side of me, behind me. I don't know where you are, but I feel in my spirit some need to give their life to Christ. And I'm, I'm patient right now. I don't have to eat for a few hours. I'm fine. I'm good. But I'm just being honest. I just sense there's people. Maybe it's also being live, you know, on the live stream. There's some people. We need to give you that opportunity. Surrender. Surrender. Does anybody want prayer? Just come up. Make your way up. Make your way up. We want to pray for you. I feel the presence of God here. If there's anybody sick in their body, you could have prayer. If you want prayer, come up. Anybody dealing with challenges and you need prayer, discouragement, it's not just salvation. Any, any of these things, you just need endurance to be that witness. If you want prayer, you could come up. Anybody can. I'm going to uh, pray one more time. And then the worship team is going to minister. While they're ministering, anybody want to respond, you can come. Father, we thank you for the impartation of your grace today. We thank you, God, for the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ shining out of our hearts today. We thank you, God, that the veil is broken in the name of Jesus. We thank you that we can resist the devil with the preaching of the word, with the uh, commending of our of the truth to every man's conscience we thank you that we could destroy the works of the devil of the god of this world that blinds the minds of unbelievers we thank you that we resist him and he must flee and anybody bound in their sense of reason and logic where they can't understand two plus two equals four they just can't get it they can't get the gospel 
We just bind those powers of darkness. We break them. And as where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. There's no veil. There's no blindness. There's no unbelief. We declare it in this room because the Spirit of the Lord is here. There is freedom. Freedom to be saved. Freedom to worship. Freedom to love God with all our hearts. Freedom to enjoy the blessings of the kingdom. Let's ask the worship team to minister right now. And anybody who wants to pray, you can make your way up. Amen. We pray that you were blessed by this word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at resurrectionchurchofny.com or give us a call at 718-436-0242 and be sure to follow us on Instagram at reschurchnyc. Take care and God bless.